You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Shane Harris, a reporter with the National Journal. He has written frequently on the subjects of national security and intelligence, and his recent publication is The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. And it has turned out to be an extraordinarily uh, popular book. Uh, it's being discussed in a variety of places here in Washington. Uh, and what he has done has delved into the evolution over the past recent years of the government's capability to surveil its people, as it were. So what, what I wonder, if we could, Shane, what I'd like to get at here is in your book, you take the approach of focusing on some of the key figures, and I hope you bring that out in our discussion. But what are you coming away with as a reporter, as someone who sits back and watches us as a people, watches as a nation. What's your bottom line? What's coming out here? What would you say to someone from Iowa who said, oh, gee, you wrote a book, you know, mm -hmm. what, what, what's that about? Right, right. Well, the book is, as you say, it's about people. So, I mean, it, 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 you know, it's really a story of really five key individuals who spent most of their careers over the past quarter century working in the intelligence community or in the high-tech field, and sometimes both, who are sort of uh, adherence to this common elusive dream, which is that the government can can and should try to build technological systems that are capable of ingesting huge amounts of information, data. We're talking about things like phone calls, emails, financial transactions, electronic footprints of people, if you will, and collect that to then sift through it for patterns of suspicious activity that indicate a terrorist attack or some sort of national security crisis. These are people who are really almost sort of trying to see the future by looking at information and predicting what people are going to do before they do it. And so the watchers are really the architects of these kind of large systems within the intelligence community that collect this data almost passively, really, and sort of sit there and crunch on it every day and try to see signals or detect signals in the noise, if you like. And one of the reasons I wanted to write about people as opposed to computers and systems is because those are really abstractions. And I think it's really hard for people to 
understand technology, much less get excited about the idea of, you know, rooms full of boxes sort of blinking and, you know, humming along and, and looking at data. I wanted to know who were the people who built this? What drove them? What drove them, particularly after 9-11, to this idea that we needed to extend the nets of surveillance, if you like, more broadly than we ever had before to try and detect those few sort of renegade actors who would do things like hijack a plane and fly them into buildings. And what I found really was that they are, I mean, they're patriots. They are driven by this sort of common dream of this belief in the power of, uh, of technology to provide solutions. But, you know, at the same time, they are really kind of, um, they're technocrats in a way. They believe in this idea that you can solve a problem by sort of applying knowledge and know-how to it. And as it turns out, what they're trying to solve is this fundamental balance between security and privacy and individual liberty. This is the heart of the conflict that they're living out sort of every single day. And The Watchers really is, in a way, the story of that conflict told through the people who are its chief actors, if you like, the ones who are really responsible for this story playing out for the past 25 years. You know, it's interesting, You and I, and I like the way you began by discussing that as a dream. In mm -hmm. other words, these were patriots. They were trying to do a thing which they felt would serve the country at a time when we feel very threatened, and where identity and what people's activities are has become very important That's right. in trying to determine. Hence this, this most recent terrorist, the four-foot-eleven blonde woman, La Rose, you know, <laughs> right, this, right. all of a sudden our, our image of the terrorist is shattered. <clears throat> right. Um, and, and you discuss this as a conflict between, you know, this trying to have all the information, the surveillance, but also protecting the privacy. The privacy, but that has sort of been a poor second, hasn't it? I mean, it has, The really, technology yeah. part is what has driven it, and that has to do with the collection and analysis. That's right. I mean, it's safe to say, I think, that as a general matter, the government, particularly post 9-11, when there was this sudden realization that we had been blindsided, the government, you know, we had the intelligence communities were, and agencies were taken by surprise. Um, there has been this urge to collect as much information as possible in order to leave no stone unturned, in order to find every potential source of details, telling information, whatever the signals may be, let's go out there and get them. And in that rush to collect, privacy has become something of a secondary concern. I think for a couple of reasons. One is that if you're collecting all this information, it is actually, technically speaking, rather difficult to sort of always protect the privacy of the people you're collecting on. I mean, if you're gathering up information on hundreds of thousands of people, let's just say, uh, you know, it obviously it becomes increasingly difficult the more you collect to try and mask the identity of all those people. So the intelligence agencies try to set up rules for how they handle information and doing things like deleting the names of any Americans or U.S. persons. And that works to a degree when you're talking about, I think, information on a more manageable scale. But the bigger these systems get, the harder it becomes. But there's a second sort of theme at play here, which is that fundamentally in this information age that we're living in, when not only information is widely available, and open sources to just about anyone with an internet connection, let's just say, but in which we are actively sending out information about ourselves, whether it be through Facebook profiles, whether it be through you know, our Amazon purchases, whatever, privacy really doesn't have the definition and the texture that it did 25 years ago when we were, I think then, suspicious of government uh, and cautious about government individually monitoring certain, let's say, political dissidents or certain uh, individual actors going after people for political purposes. Now what we're talking about is an era where 
privacy doesn't mean what it used to mean. And the government isn't so much trying to go out and target dissidents. They're trying to collect huge amounts of information to detect unknown yet unidentified terrorist actors. And so you can see how all of these notions and these definitions of privacy, as well as just the operational kind of mindset of the intelligence community, have just changed. They're different than they were 25 years ago. And we're still, I think, trying to, in a lot of ways, apply the old solutions for privacy to these new problems. And one of the things that the people in the book have really found is that that just doesn't work. You know, practically speaking, privacy doesn't mean what it used to, so you can't expect that the old definitions and models of privacy are going to fit in this sort of new reality we're living in. It's, 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 it was very startling to me how, in a way, the government has sort of come very quietly to this realization that privacy doesn't mean what it used to. Information is out there for the taking. Technically and legally speaking, there aren't that many impediments anymore to the government collecting information. And to the degree that they believe that the way they stop the next attack is to collect more data and to look at it, that is precisely what they're going to do. And so you can just see how the privacy conversation sort of gets lost in all of that. I know you use the phrase, uh, looking back, <clears throat> and I don't think you're just looking at American history, but perhaps all history, that when governments uh, can collect information on a broad scale, uh, the ex executive has that capability uh, I think you use the phrase, you know, history teaches us that they will do it. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. right. And, th and this is not, you know, there is, when we use phrases like government quietly does this or quietly does that, there's a sort of a little aura there, an implication of evil or, mm -hmm. or for evil ends. And yet that's not the case at all. Yeah. And, and as you point out in the book, these, these architects, the figures you've drawn, are people, uh, extraordinary patriots who've spent long hours spent their lives literally in the service of trying to serve the country in, in, in the noblest way we can think of. That's right, that's um, right. And yet the, what has emerged is something that for many people has those implications of an evilness. You touched on something earlier when you and I were talking. Um, I, I think for many people uh, who are not involved in this sort of thing day to day, they're not in the government, they don't deal with intelligence, law enforcement issues, they hear about this vast collection of information. And I think they, there are many who intend to interpret that, meaning their phone is tapped, uh -huh. they're being followed, their, their car is bugged. Uh -huh. And that's not what you meant at all. Uh, I mean, it could, you could just yeah. expand on that a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, Evan asked this question a lot, too, just from people who come to talk about the book and who want to know, is the government monitoring me? Are they listening to my phone calls? Have they bugged my car, as you said? And generally what I say is, you know, the government is interested in monitoring foreign threats for the most part, and certainly it's very concerned about domestic threats, but the kind of surveillance that's going on right now is this sort of massive, almost passive kind where, you, again, you do not have rooms full of, you know, hundreds of people sitting at computer terminals with headphones on, listening to every phone call that goes by and trying to scan every single email for buzzwords. You know, they're looking much more on sort of a meta level, how information moves, how it flows, what are the patterns. They're much more interested, in fact, these days 
in how individuals are connected to each other in a social network based on their communication patterns and their movements, oftentimes than they are what people are actually saying. I mean, in fact, the intelligence community has found in recent years you can find a lot more about information about terrorist networks sometimes looking at those connections and forming the diagrams than by trying to listen to every phone call or email all of which are probably encoded anyway and using sort of coded language and this kind of thing. So you know, Americans, I think, have this sense that perhaps they're being followed and monitored specifically, but it's not quite happening that way. It is this more sort of passive system. I mean, it's the government trying to monitor communications coming into the United States that look suspicious, and perhaps you kind of get caught up in that mix. Or it's um, the government looking at things like um, cyber threats, for instance, on the internet, and trying to understand where hackers are coming from. And in the process of doing that, looking at all of the communications that are sort of coursing through the network. And it's much less of this often, I think, kind of targeted, let me zero in on every phone call, every email, and listen to it. It's letting the systems kind of sit back and watch for the patterns. And not that that should necessarily give people a great amount of comfort. There is still active, you know, there's still surveillance happening in that way. But we're kind of past, I think, the days when you could describe surveillance as somebody shimmying up a phone pole and clamping a wiretap on or somebody you know just following you around in a car it's much more on this sort of step back 80,000 foot kind of level that sort of sweeps in data um, almost just as traffic as just sort of everyday uh, noise into a system and it's and it's much more wide scale and passive than it. it's not to say that the government can't monitor people individually of course it can but in order to find out who to watch, if you like, they sort of take the position of, well, we have to watch lots of people and to do it from this high, high perch before we can know who to sort of swoop down on and look at more specifically. Yeah, and I think that you just used the word focus in discovering that. We just did a series uh, with the Smithsonian here at the Spy Museum on, on some major spies, uh, Ames and Hanson, Montez and so forth. And the speakers, a number of the speakers repeatedly made the point that what what these were, people, folks were doing as individual spies wasn't discernible to their colleagues, to their families, to their neighbors, and so forth. But when 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 something happened that raised the level of suspicion mm -hmm. and brought them to the attention of the authorities of the FBI, that focus would become and could have the capability of becoming extraordinarily intense. That's right. And this is sort of like uh, uh, the columnist Lipman. You know, the media is like a searchlight. You know, there's a great darkness, and it, it, it puts the light on one subject, which then gets you yeah. know illuminated, illuminated to an extraordinary. And I think this is very much like that. Yeah, and I think uh, you know what we're talking about. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if mm. talking to people, you know, over the years who are sort of doing this kind of watching, you know, the people who are really out there, whether it be in the FBI or the intelligence agencies, trying to hunt down and track individual terrorists and understand them. What they will tell you is that once the government gets somebody in its sights, it's very good at kind of zooming in and picking that person apart and, you know, tracking them sometimes through video surveillance, let's say, if it's with a predator aircraft overseas or, uh, you know, uh, sort of unlocking their social network through their communications. They can really go and do a lot of sort of mining on that one person. The problem is 
What about all those people who are not yet in the target, who are not yet in the crosshairs, who are sort of existing in this cloud outside of the crosshairs, if you like? And that's really the people who I write about. That's where they live. That's the space that they inhabit. And they're constantly looking for that individual to kind of get into the box so that they can go to work on that person. And it is sort of like, you know, use the analogy of you know, the spotlight moving through the dark and looking for the target in a way. But once you're in that spotlight, then, of course, you know, it's a much more focused and I think often productive exercise than simply sort of fishing around in the data, which is very frustrating for the people who are doing it because it's just extraordinarily difficult. That certainly makes the case for what is now being called asymmetrical warfare, doesn't mm -hmm. it? In other words, part of what we're dealing with, uh, you know, we're now fighting in Afghanistan. Al-Qaeda, meanwhile, is in Pakistan mm -hmm. causing a lot of problem over there. And it's this amorphous quality, this this uh, ability of an organization or an idea or people attached to that idea to morph, to literally be in a place and have things happen but there's something also going over here that we're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. what, what Rumsfeld might have called the unknowns unknowns. Yeah, no we don't unknowns. even know right. what's there. Yeah. That's right. And this is, I mean, this is the nature of the asymmetry. Yeah. And, you know, terrorist networks, and they are networks, they are nimble, they are agile. The whole strategy of, of an asymmetric fight is premised, I think, on going where your enemy's not attacking you, trying to surprise them. And we're dealing with adversaries who do not announce themselves. And, you know, as you know well, I mean, the intelligence community throughout the Cold War was geared towards collecting on these known targets and like, trying to penetrate them and find out what the unknowns were. But we're talking about, you know, shifting from an era of on the technical collection side, let's say, you know, using satellites to count, you know, tank divisions and the number of, you know, uh, ships being built and these kinds of knowable things that you could see towards now trying to use technology to discern what? Whether somebody who is uh, calling a certain phone number or making a certain series of transactions is plotting a terrorist attack. I mean, that's, it's completely amorphous and it's vague and it's sketchy. And I think this is what really unnerves people in the intelligence community today is how do you go after that kind of threat? How do you fight it? But also just how do you find out information about it? I mean, it can be so difficult to, you know, to get people into those crosshairs. And when you're dealing in this data space, you're also talking about it being populated mostly by completely innocent people. I mean, you're not talking about troop divisions marching through, you know, a field. You're talking about terrorist groups literally trying to hide amongst ordinary people. And that's, and that is the great challenge. And so the, the, uh, the clever group, if you will, will look for ways not to leave data footprints, as it were. How can they move without leaving them? Or, uh, I mean, an interesting example is this recent uh, apparent assassination in Dubai, mm -hmm. where there were all sorts of footprints. But the fundamental question was raised afterwards, did the perpetrators care right. that they left these footprints? Were the footprints themselves false. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't operate in, you know, as a terrorist or, you know, in a, an intelligence organization anymore, anyone. You can't operate as a regular person without, uh, you know, assuming that some trace of you won't be left behind, right? So, I mean, I think the challenge for terrorists is often, uh, you know, how do we change up our patterns? I mean, how do we, you know, uh, uh, do things that are less obvious? You know, it's interesting, though, talking to people in the intelligence community, I mean, 
After news of the NSA warrantless surveillance program back in 2005 broke publicly and, and people learned that for the better part of the past four years or so, NSA had been monitoring phone calls and email traffic um, without the benefit of court oversight, without getting warrants. Um, Michael Hayden, who was the director of NSA at the time, actually gave a speech at the National Press Club where he was defending what the agency had been doing. And, um, and he was really criticizing the press for trying to write about this and trying to focus on what are you up to at the NSA? What are the operational details of this? How are you doing this? And he said, you know, the more information gets out about this, the we see a degradation, if you like, in the quality of our intelligence. In other words, you're alerting terrorists to the fact that we're monitoring their phone calls and their emails. They're going to stop using phones and emails so much. And someone raised the question in this conference. They said, I mean, isn't that, you know, don't we just assume the terrorists know they're being monitored? I mean, do you really think that we're telling them something that they don't know? And he stopped and he looked at the reporter asked this question. He said, well, sometimes they don't really act like they know. And what I, what I think he was saying was that the government depends upon terrorists and terrorist networks making operational errors and doing, in a way, stupid things, communicating too openly and too freely. And they depend upon those little sort of openings to exploit to then get inside the networks and understand what they're doing. So, I mean, I'm not arguing that, you know, the press, obviously I'm not arguing the press shouldn't be writing about these things. I mean, I was one of the people doing it at the time. But I think what Hayden was saying is valid to a degree, which is that the only way that you sort of seize on these targets and take advantage of them is to look for those moments where they kind of pop up on the radar and maybe do something stupid, maybe use the wrong word, maybe call the wrong number. And if you can, those are the opportunities that you have to exploit. And so this is very tricky. I mean, it's like a cat and mouse game, you know, exponentially harder, though, than just, you know, an ordinary chase where you're looking for, you know, who is the Politburo official that we're trying to trail today, or who is the mole that we're trying to ferret out. This is something in an order of magnitude different. You're talking about chasing phantoms here, basically. Well, if, if we go back to uh, uh, the, the so-called underwear bomber, <clears throat> Abdul Mutala, uh, uh, interestingly, <clears throat> while his father was, you know, going to the U.S. Embassy in their, in their native country, uh, there was there was some loose chatter in Yemen about using a Nigerian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yes, and Monday morning quarterbacking, sure. we can all look back and say, look at that. But that's a precise example of what you're talking about. Somebody had a loose tongue. That's right. That's and right. And gave away, and it was just a nationality. Right. Could have said an American. Or, exactly. Or, but they said Nigerian. Exactly. And this was a Nigerian. And you know, and the intelligence community, you know to put it sort of starkly, lives or dies by those kinds of opportunities. And, and in that case, I mean, and it's very, you're right, it is, is easy to sort of, you know, to in hindsight say, well, they should have detected something. What was unfortunate about that case, I think, is to a degree, people did the right things, right? I mean, so the NSA did recognize that there was this chatter about a Nigerian. And the embassy staff who talked to Abdul Muttalib's father recognized that he was coming in and filing a report about his son maybe going to Al-Qaeda. And so those two silos, if you like, both recognized those pieces of information, but didn't seem particularly moved by them because they had nothing else to follow up on. It's just sort of chatter about a Nigerian. It's a father coming into an embassy. What has to happen going forward is those kinds of reports have to be fused together. There has to be someone almost sitting above all of those layers and saying, wait a second, you guys are getting this thing about a Nigerian. Here we have a guy in Nigeria talking about someone in Yemen. We have to dig closer on this. And it's not to say that they would find out any more information. But in this case, you had the left hand and the right hand 
sort of reaching for the same target without knowing it, and no one sort of put them together. So this, and this now becomes the challenge, and you can see how difficult this is. I mean, the NSA is constantly hearing, I am sure, you know, mentions of plots and of people who might be involved. And so again, it's very easy to sort of look back and say, oh, but here, Nigerian, Nigeria, you should have been obvious. But the problem we have is that those two things were never fused together, so we'll never know what more could have been found out. But those are the kind of little opportunities that when they come up, you know, the intelligence system has to be able to take advantage of it. And, you know, it's not going to be, it's never going to be perfect. There will always be people who slip through the cracks like this. You know, uh, in our discussion uh, today, we've, we've focused a lot on, on the capabilities the watchers have developed, particularly focusing on terrorism and terrorists. But quite clearly in your book, the architects of these systems foresaw and foresee a future in which these capabilities will have application for organized crime, drug trafficking. I think at one point in your book mentioned perhaps even uh, a vehicular traffic, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm, exactly. tra traffic gridlock. Exactly. And so really, the, the, and, and that, in other words, we, the boon from having this kind of capability and dealing with one of the things that's happened with globalization is the growth of organized crime mm -hmm. and links between criminals, terrorists, and drug dealers. Right. This should help get at that, these capabilities. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, at base, all this is about is trying to manage information and to use information effectively, which in a way is what the intelligence business is all about, in a lot of, a lot of it anyway. Um, you know, people who are building these systems, I think, recognize the applications beyond just government security. And frankly, for the companies and the entrepreneurs who are trying to design a lot of these programs and systems, I think they realize that the real money, if you want to put it that way, and the real business growth potential is not in government. It's in things like bio-research. It's in things like law enforcement. It's in things like um, using this kind of data mining and pattern analysis technology to watch stock trades. Uh, you know, Goldman Sachs is a great example of a company that has spent a lot of time developing very high-level and very secret algorithms that are premised on the idea that if you can sort of see before anyone else the minute variations in stock prices, you can do things through purchases and sells to take advantage of that and to make money, calling it micro-arbitrage, basically, if you want to look at it that way. So these technology applications go well beyond just trying to catch terrorists. It's all about trying to capitalize on and exploit information. I, I just, uh, when I hear you mention the term micro-arbitrage, I'm wondering if I'm if I'm hearing the glimmerings of a new book, but I'll let that one go. <laughs> well, listen, Shane Harris, it's been wonderful talking to you. It's a terrific book, and I think it's a real contribution uh, to what we're experiencing today. I think it can, I think it has a place in any discussion, uh, policy-wise or whatever, of the capabilities the government not only is developing, has developed, uh, these, and also the privacy issues. So thank you so much for your effort. Hope to see you again, and uh, good luck to you. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.